This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi, folks, and welcome along to another episode of the Money Mechanics podcast, where we are looking under the hood and unpacking the money stuff. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Marissa Broom, who's a certified financial planner, another finance geek, but also managing director of uh, Wealth Advice, which is a boutique financial planning practice in Sydney and specializes in holistic planning and focuses in on, on small business owners. So welcome along, Marissa. It's great to have you here today. Thank you, Scott. I have to say I'm feeling a little bit like an imposter because I've seen all the amazing guests you've had before me and I'm feeling like I really can't add a lot of value. But I'm sure that you'll, with your expert ways, get me to talk about things that I um, wasn't sure I even knew about beforehand. I mean, we, we ran into each other at a, at a conference recently and you've recently just stepped down as uh, chair of the Financial Planning Association. So I do, I do want to say, look, on behalf of our profession, thank you for the amazing work that you do in the, the back end there as well, because I guess financial advice has had a bit of a rough ride over the last uh, last few years. Um, so I'd, I'd love to get your insights on that. But before we go there, I've been asking all our guests, have you got any an early happy or, or a money memory from, from earlier in life that you think of as sort of a happy or a, a good values story? I don't know if it's a happy memory, but it's a, it's a life lesson. And I mean, we were talking just before we started the official podcast is that I'm a carer of my parents. You know, I've done lots of caring in my life. In fact, I think a job as a financial planner is a caring role in many ways. And a lot of the money lessons I have in my life, I was taught by my parents who I'm now now managing their money for them. You know, little things like my dad used to make us come to him on the night before he got paid and we would lay out to him our business case for why we wanted money or why we wanted an allowance that month and what we were going to use it for and if it was a big project he would say to us, well, for every dollar you save, I'll match you at a dollar. And he did all these sorts of really interesting things about teaching us to budget, and I still use these every day. And ironically, I haven't been very good at showing that to my children, um, but I do it in my business. I actually talk to my clients. A lot of my clients came to me without the ability to actually work out where their money was going every month, and I do that with them. And I think it's those those lessons I was taught, even as young as six and seven, um, that have carried through with me for the you know the remainder of my life. I love that, that that saving and then, the, again, that motivation to, to build it up. And do you remember saving for anything special or was uh, was it more just the, the process of savings, I guess? Um, look, it was everything. It was as, uh, little things like I was selected to go on a national camp um, as a guide and it was a really expensive thing to go on. And, you know, my dad sort of showed me how to save for it so I could go to that. And it was a real honour to represent my state. I mean, there wasn't that many of us going onto a national platform and that was probably the first sort of recognition type event that I'd been selected for and it was you know one of those things that I worked towards and then then it went through to cars when we got older um, I was lucky enough to go away from home to go to university and my parents helped me support that but then they we, I learned about having a part-time job so there were all sorts of goals I had in life that I wanted to achieve and they sort of set me up with the foundations about how I would do it now money wasn't super plentiful but there was always lots of money in our house for the things that we thought were important so education or opportunities there was money always available for that and it was only available through hard work it wasn't available just simply because there was a lot of dollars in the bank it was because we were taught the the value of money from an early age to actually achieve and then also to prioritize where our spending was going to go 
And it sounds like you've had a bit of a, a journey and, and maybe that's a, a nice little segue to, to some of the amazing work that you've actually done for the financial planning profession. And so you, you've been on the board or were on the board of the Financial Planning Association for about eight years. And you've also were on the regulatory advisory panel for the Financial Planning Standards Board, which is the international body, isn't it, for certified financial planners like, like ourselves. What, what was that experience like? Look, I, I've been quoted a lot as saying that being on the FPA board was the you know greatest professional honour of my life, but having to be, then be voted as the chair and, and to run be in that role in probably what was the most turbulent time in financial planning. We've had so much change over the last three and a half years, and it was fantastic. Look, it was harrowing at times. It was a lot of hard work, but it wasn't. I wasn't there for that. I, I ran for election to the board because I'd been a member of the FPA since it was formed, and I really just wanted to give back. I am so proud of my profession. I love the people that I call my peers, call quite rightly my peers. I um, think that we are one of the most vital professions in Australia, in the world. So um, the difference we make, the positive, meaningful difference we make with our clients every day, and I just wanted to give back to that profession because I knew that we were doing it tough. So as much as there was a whole lot of negatives there, there was so many more positives in the great people I met, people like you that I got to meet. So I wouldn't have done that without being the chair of the FPA, so it was terrific. Being on the Financial Planning Standards Board, that was very different because that gives you, you know, Australia is a mature market for financial planning. We were the first territory outside of the US to offer the Certified Financial Planner designation. So we are way down the track. In fact, I think we're even ahead of the US in terms of how we offer our services. Um, But there are a lot of countries that have just started being CFPs, you know, India and Brazil and other places like that, that are steamrolling ahead with the way that they're offering financial planning. So just I learned as much as I was able to share. I mean, I think Australia is a case of be careful what you wish for. We wished for professionalisation. The pillars of ethics and education, I have no problem with. The implementation of those, I I have some major problems with. So we were a case of of being able to share our experiences in that work I did with the RAP. And I'm still helping out with the FPSB, even though I'm not officially there, uh, because they're producing a whole lot of best practice work and I'm going to be involved in in helping them sort of um, make those relevant to all territories. I'm really passionate about the like access to financial advice. And again, we, we sit in such a privileged role as, as you're just commenting there as financial advisors, we get to have such open, honest, sometimes I know first time someone's had a conversation about that certain area of their life, be it around the money or be it about the, the emotional or, or family impact of, of that situation. And but unfortunately, one of those barriers to entry because of the compliance and the processes and the, the requirements behind the scenes is that the cost has really been pushed up. Uh, have you got any sort of insights around, I guess, what you've seen experience-wise, uh, even Australia versus the world, if, we, if we're sort of looking on that paradigm? But is there stuff happening in the background to try and give that accessibility back to people? Or is that just, a, I know, Scott being uh, um, ambitious that uh, we, can, we can get to that stage down the track? No, no, I think there's a lot happening and I can't talk on the FBA's behalf anymore, but I know I did an awful lot of work around um, the policy platform the FPA has, which talks about the, the need of a, a, an AFSL, the current licensing system that we operate. Uh, in fact, one of my platforms when I ran for the board, and that's now almost nine years ago, was to get rid of financial planning out of Chapter 7 and Chapter 7 out of the uh, Corps Act. And that's happening under the Law Reform Commission review. So you're starting to see th- there's things happening there. But there's no doubt financial planning in Australia is the most expensive it is anywhere in the world. It's more expensive than any other territory that I've come across. And that is simply, I think, 
a reflection of the complexity. You know, we had seven regulators. We're down to five now, but that's still probably four too many. We should have the ability to have a level of professional judgment and have one regulatory body and not this complexity of often, I think the regulation often contradicts each other. Everyone's interpretation is quite different. Um, and I really do question the value of a licensee, not because I don't think they offer services. I think there's a really important role for licensees, but we should actually be much the same as doctors. You know, a doctor can choose to have their shingle up by themselves as a GP. They can work in a hospital. They can work in a medical centre. And I think financial planners should have the same uh, ability to employ in any way and at the moment that's not the case you've got to find an AFSL to work under and that I think adds some extra costs and complexity to how advice is delivered so I'd question that I mean we've got the education standards now we've got ongoing education standards we've got the exam that people have to do whether you agree with them or not in the way that they've been implemented they actually provide the framework of professionalism now that we have a professional framework we should be treated and allowed to have professional judgment that will make it a lot more cost effective. I think that would probably halve the costs uh, of providing advice. Yeah, definitely. And I think even at the moment, uh, Marissa, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this, but it was around 28, 29,000 advisors. And so I always came into the industry in the early 2000s and it was one of those sort of things, oh, wow, you're a part of this very, very niche community of, of advice professionals um, as the industry was starting to, I guess, encourage more people in. Well, I think it really is a, a big role that, that I know the professional associations are spending a lot of time in that, that it's really important to get people to understand that financial planning is a career choice. Um, and the FBA, for example, had a 1,000 student members and we were working on career paths for them. They had to find a home. And I know, I know in my practice, when I was the FBA chair, I didn't have time to supervise someone doing their PY um, because it's a really burdensome process and it needs to be a good thorough process, but it doesn't have to be as compliance-driven as it is. So we need to do a lot about getting new entrants in. The other thing I'm really interested in, and I, um, I've had a lot of op opportunities to be in Uber this year, and just about every Uber driver I had had a Masters of Accounting and they've therefore qualified for residency. And we haven't had any, not very much migration over the last couple of years but why couldn't a Masters of Financial Planning qualify someone for residency? We really need some people that are in the back office doing the para planning and the really good technical skills. And we can't find a lot of those people here. They're going to engineering and they're going to other sectors. Why not actually start seeing us as a migration tool um, that would be attractive um, to our profession? But that's not going to solve all the problems. We just need to get more people to actually enrol in financial planning in the first place. How do you think we can attract more young people into financial services? Because it's an industry I'm so passionate about and I just think there's so much opportunity for, for younger people. I think that people don't know that financial planning is a career. The only reason I knew at 15 or 16 that financial planning could be a career is that my dad worked for a bank that had a chain of financial planning services. That's almost a, a dirty word to say that now, but we're talking about yeah. uh, 40 years ago. It was a very different world than it is now. Um, and they were the at the forefront of offering great advice. And we actually need to make people aware that financial planning is a career and not just people at school picking a bachelor of financial planning course but actually making people at university in doing psychology or engineering or anything else that a sub-major in financial planning may offer them an alternative career path we need people with lots of diverse skills coming forward
Totally agree. And I mean, look, I started in this industry in 2001 and I, I often say to people I started because I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life and stumbled into a, a job that was offered to me after I finished my commerce degree. And I think it's just about making people aware that it is a profession. It is like going into to law or, or other areas because there's so much uh, great opportunity out there. But I still recall, uh, and again, you, you may have a, a similar memory with uh, for your life in the industry, but when I first uh, joined, I was so excited. I told my parents, friends that I just secured a job as a, um, a graduate or a trainee financial planner. And they sort of turned around from my, my big bubble of energy of, oh, it's exciting. I'm, I've got this career, this profession I'm going to go into. And they turned around, oh, you're going to sell insurance? And it basically burst my, my whole bubble uh, when, they, when they turned around and sort of came at it with a, a different energy, which was uh, quite different to what the reality of, of day-to-day financial planning life is. Well, look, I think we've almost got the same thing happening now in that uh, I'm a holistic financial planner and I spend a whole lot of time on the strategy for the client, not the solution, which may be a product. But I think mm. that there's a whole lot of financial planners that are also scared about being labelled investment advisors because they they feel mm. that the market is saying they're going to sell investments. Really, that's, again, a solution to the problems that the clients come to you with. And I think that we need to start that really basic education about what we do and it is strategic it's no different to in fact it's it's more comprehensive because it's forward looking than what you'd go to your accountant to get advice on because accountancy tends to be backward looking on the work that they do so um, there's a huge consumer um, education piece that's happening you know obviously we're an aging population more people are realizing that they need financial advice now they can't seek it but um or they can't actually find an advisor whose books are open but that's that's another problem in itself i think you're right it's just that that understanding of what is financial advice and how does it work and i mean again we do this podcast but there's so many other podcasts out there that really help people to understand that it's it's not actually about investment like as you say it's one solution to the to the pie, but it's actually about that that bigger picture, broader broader thinking of well, what's your ideal life? What are you trying to achieve? What are the the values that are important to you when it comes to uh, this thing called money that that's all around us? Being in the industry for as long as you have, you've probably got some great uh, great stories. Are there any uh, that come to mind that you think, yep, this this is something that you I don't know look back on as as a great client outcome or a, a great client story to to share? Well, look, I've been so lucky. Um, I, I worked in funds management before I became a financial planner. And a lot of my peers in funds management were earning an awful lot of money and they had no one to help them because they'd never been taught how to save. So they were earning lots and not having anything to show for it. So my clients were normally about the same age as me. We were doing the same things. We were buying our first houses. We were, you know, having children, having families, all those sorts of things were happening. And we grew up, we're growing old together. They've all got choices about how they retire now because they've seen my advice on the way through. My very first client came to me and said they're incredibly conservative. They they really didn't, you know, weren't comfortable with aggressive investments. Uh, and when I looked at their portfolio, 99% of their wealth was actually in direct shares. Uh, to me, that was a really aggressive portfolio, but to them, yeah. it was really conservative because they were all blue chip shares. So there's a whole lot of things about the education of clients that have happened. You know, I do deal with very, very wealthy people every day, and it does change my perception of what the needs are of the broader market. And I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that I'm quite narrow in the sorts of people I deal with. What's helping me be a little bit broader in my approach is that my clients are now coming to me with their children saying, hey, we haven't taught them how to save. Can you teach them how to save? Can you teach them how to get their first house deposit together? And they're also coming to me with their parents saying, oh, my goodness, my parents need aged care. 
All they've got is their house. They're on the full age pension. What, what can you do? Now, I don't have any clients that are on the age pension, but all of a sudden now I've got the parents of my clients that I'm dealing with some really complex issues on. And I have to be aware of what I can and can't do and where I need to actually outsource services. So they're not funny stories, but it's um, it's it's been a wild ride. I still have my very first client. My very first client came to me with a million-dollar portfolio, and that doesn't sound a lot in today's days. But 25 years ago, that was an awful lot of money to be mm. um, talking about. And, and I had to pretend at that stage that I was well experienced. Now, I was, I was very financially illiterate, but I'd never, ever given advice before. And it was only that I had an amazing business partner that I was able to handle the complexity of that client at the time. Yeah. And I think that's the exciting thing about financial advice is that we are able to bring in other experts and talk to other people. And again, I'll, I'll plug our podcast because we've, we've spoken to people who do focus in on aged care or who do focus in on, on Centrelink or those those client um, strategies. And so it is quite complex, the, the breadth of things that we can talk about. And so I think, as you've just said there, it's great to get other people involved and to know, okay, this is what how I can help, but actually you need to talk to this person to uh, really get the the framework and the strategy uh, pulled together at the end of the day. Yeah. And probably the other thing that I do a little bit differently than a lot of financial planners. Now, I wholeheartedly believe that the value of advice is only seen over the long term. You might solve a small problem for a client when they first come to see you, but the real value of the, the work that you do with them is really only seen three, four, five, ten years down the track. And I'm seeing it now with those original clients of mine where they've got a choice about when they retire because we've built wealth for them over 25 years. But I think a lot of financial planners assume that every client needs to come and see them twice a year and not every client does. And I have clients that I only see every two or three years. Um, I've seen them when they need to. Now, I've had to restructure how I offer my services and the risk associated with providing advice episodically rather than regularly. But I've actually managed to carve out a niche with my clients, which means that they continually able to refer more people to me because I've actually got more capacity to handle more people because I'm not seeing everybody every six months. Now, it doesn't work for every practice. It doesn't work necessarily for every client because I've got a lot of clients I speak to every week as well. But it's a matter of me being client-centric in the sort of ways that I was offering services. And I think that our broader profession maybe could revisit every client and seeing really if they are providing services that are suitable for the client or they're really suitable for their business model and working out what the trade-off might be and how that they can actually offer some services to more people. Yeah, definitely. And I often call that uh, being being with clients where they're at. So uh, look, I love what you've just said there uh, wholeheartedly because it's some people need to see a financial advisor on an ongoing basis or need that regular check-in or the, the weekly sort of touch points to, to make sure that they're, they're doing the right things. But other clients might just need a bit of direction and, and set and, and uh, download some information or get some, uh, some context and insight or advice, and they might not need to see you for another two or, or three years down the track. So I think it is we've, we've got to reframe some of those, uh, those elements and um, not necessarily go. Oh, well, you're no longer a client because I can't. Uh, I can't see you every every six months. It's uh, actually you're still a client, but I don't need to see you for another two years. So, yeah, we say come back in two or three. Here's the three things you've got to do over the next two years. Come back and see us when you've done them. When you've made these big decisions, we will be a sounding board on the way through. And when we we actually have to go back through the whole process again and getting to know you when you do come back and just update things. But we, we tell them that we think this is the best service for them. And, you know, our clients are very loyal as a result of the fact that we are putting ourselves in their shoes and actually making sure we're walking the, you know, it's really client centric. Yeah, I love that. I love that. That's an 
nice little uh, segue to, to my question around any lessons or any uh, habits, behaviors or beliefs or practices that you think over the last sort of few years has really helped to improve your, your life or again, financial planning world or personal life that you, you're happy to share? Well, a few things. I was, again, this is a life lesson and, and you know, I've talked to you about the fact that the, the things that my parents have taught me are really resonating with me at the moment because of my personal situation. But I was taught that if you did all the hard jobs that you didn't like first up in the day, then the rest of the day was your, your own to do your own things. So, you know, whether it be in my business, with my clients uh, or for myself, if I get up and do the stuff I hate to do first up, then the rest of the day is just fantastic. And I'm a bit of a, a glasses half full person anyway. I always see the, the, the great opportunity. Uh, and it's even easier to, to really relish life when you've got all the bad stuff out of the way. So in my business, compliance is always done really early in the morning because I hate it. Um, it's important. It's necessary, but I hate it. So that's always done first. So I can spend the rest of the day doing what I love, which is spending the day with my clients. For my own life, though, uh, there hasn't been a lot of free time while I was doing the FPA job as well as trying to run a business and be a financial planner. Um, but I'm really now embracing a whole lot of other things. I, I sort of feel that um, you only live once and you really shouldn't say no unless you really don't want to do something. So be true to yourself, get on with it and take advantage of every opportunity that's presented to you, which is why I'm, um, I'm doing this podcast with you because it, what you were doing was resonating with me about educating people about the whole issue around money and I was just so inspired by that and I'll keep saying yes to these opportunities because if I can share just one little thing that will change people's money attitudes I'm really delighted to be able to be involved in that. Oh, that's that's fantastic, Marissa. And thank you so much. I mean, I may have said it before, but uh, on behalf of the the profession, I think volunteering uh, and and putting your hand up to actually step into a role like you have with the the FPA is often a, a, a bit of a thankless task. And I've been on on volunteer boards in my my life. And again, depending on the community that you're you're representing or that you're. Uh, you're working with, um, you often become a, a person where all the, the troubles and all the, the grievances come to uh, if you're in that that role. So uh, I think you get to see the the good, the bad and the, the inspirational, I guess, in, in some of those areas. So thanks for uh, all that you've done um, in the background and thanks for sharing some of those stories today. Have you got any final thoughts or, or anything else before we wrap up today? Probably the thing that, you know, a little bit like your story about when you got this graduate role being a financial planner and someone took the wind out from under your sails. Money is actually something that is almost taboo. It's, you know, we've just gone through an election. Talking politics is almost a taboo. Talking religion. And and money shouldn't be. Money gives you choices. Uh, money is not unlimited for most people unless you're incredibly lucky. It comes from hard work and you actually almost owe it to yourself to talk about it, get the advice you need around it, not, not to be scared about it, not to stick your head in the sand um, and actually embrace it and take advantage of, of the resources that are out there, whether it be comprehensive financial plan, planning advice that we offer or whether it be going to the Money Smart website with ASIC own your money and actually talk about it and make sure you do make sensible decisions about it. Uh, if it looks too good to be true, it is. So get some sensible advice around um, how you can just set yourself up better. And that's regardless of whether you're in your first job or your last job. I love that totally, Marissa. And I think that's a great place to end today. We, we do keep these episodes short and sweet, I often say, but um, it's been a privilege to uh, to hear your story and, and hear some of the, the lessons and 
shared stories that you've had uh, over your career and uh, look forward to continuing that, that conversation as we go. And I'll put uh, your contact details in our show notes today, as well as some of those great resources, the Money Smart website. And, and even if people are looking to get financial advice, I mean, obviously we're two financial advisors here, but there are resources there. So you can actually go and know the questions to ask if you are seeking out a financial advisor and a relationship. Um, and it's often good to speak to a few people, I, I find. Um, it's about finding, a, a again, as Marissa said today, a rapport with someone and you're going to be sharing some a deep, dark and uh, sometimes very vulnerable information with them. And as you say, we can talk about money more openly. Uh, that's a great thing, but you just need to be able to open up and, and share that detail with the, the professional that you're going to be working with. Marissa, thank you so much for joining us today. And folks at home, if you've enjoyed the show, please uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts and we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.